If you're in need of a Bible this morning to follow along in the pew in front of you, the black ones are Bibles. In the 740s, you'll find the book of Daniel, uh, and we'll be in chapter 9 this morning. As we've been moving through the book of Daniel, we've been doing a study in contrast. We've been contrasting uh, the kings and rulers and empires of this world with the kingdom of God and Jesus as its king. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at Jesus as our merciful king. You know, Israel has a covenant relationship with God. It begins way back with Abraham when God makes some promises to Abraham. He says, leave everything you're doing, walk away, come and follow me, I'll show you a land, I'll give you descendants, and I will bless your descendants. And then that, that agreement, that covenant relationship grows and grows until God brings them out of Egypt by his powerful hand in redemption takes them into the promised land, and along the way gives them, uh, gives them the law, which is not only their side of the agreement, but also a blessing in and of itself because it displays who God is, and it displays how life is supposed to work and what leads to flourishing. But as Israel goes on about their business, they neglect the law. In fact, they neglect the God who made these promises to them. They turn to false gods. Uh, we see this cyclically in the book of Judges is over and over again. Every generation turns away from the Lord until they're uh, in dire straits and call out to God and then God uh, brings a, a deliverer, a judge. And then eventually they raise up a king, but the kings start to lead the people away from Israel. And so over the course of hundreds of years, God sends his prophets and warns Israel, the way you're heading on is the way of destruction. Uh, he had promised them all the way back in Deuteronomy what the consequences of rebellion would be, and yet they don't listen, and they continue to resist, and they continue to rebel. And finally, the prophets say, if you don't turn around, God's going to remove you from the land of Israel. He's going to bring in a cruel people, the Babylonians. He's going to sack Jerusalem by the hand of the Babylonians and carry off uh, your people to a land you've never been to. Um, that's what makes up the story that leads us to Daniel. Daniel is living in Bam Babylon. He's one of those captives. He's been serving the Babylonian empire almost all of his life. He's now in his late 80s. Okay? But the tension... The tension for Daniel is, as we'll see this morning, as he's reading the scriptures, he realizes that this period of judgment, this 70 years promised by Jeremiah is almost up. And his question is, okay, how, how do we get back to the relationship we're supposed to have with God? And although he knows the promises, he feels the need to pray. God says, in 70 years, I'm going to restore. He gets to, as we'll see this morning, about year 67, and he starts to pray and asking God to restore his people. Now, that's interesting in and of itself. Is this something God is going to do or something Daniel has to ask for? And the answer is clearly, according to Daniel, yes. It's both of those things. Uh, it's amazing how God works because he proclaims this promise through Jeremiah, he prays this promise through Daniel, and then he proclaims it through a man named Cyrus, who isn't even a Jew, just, just a king, a Persian king. Uh, he brings about all of these things. He works through the methods of men. But as we read, we'll see that the tension here is not just God's timeline. It's the greater tension. How did Israel get here in the first place? They got here because of their sins because of their rebellion, because of their resistance against God. And he looks around and he knows that even if they uh, are finished with their time out, even if their discipline period is over, they're still the self-same people. He looks at the history of Israel and what he sees is a covenant between a faithful God and an unfaithful people. And so he knows this time is coming to an end, but he wonders how it's going to play out. And so what he prays here effectively is a prayer of confession. 
So what we're going to learn about this morning is the fact that our king, uniquely among all kings, is a merciful king. And that's good because we're a people who need mercy. And we don't have to really go far for the contrast this morning. Just consider King Nebuchadnezzar, who features greatly in this book. What happens to those who stand against the will of Nebuchadnezzar? Fiery furnace, right? Consider uh, Belshazzar uh, and how he views life. We know from history uh, that he was cunning and maniacal and horrible. Even Darius, who we read about this morning, remember he passes a really poorly written law. Anyone for a month who prays to anyone but me will be thrown into the lion's den. It's a bad law, but he has to keep it, even reluctantly. There's no room for mercy. But here, in Daniel chapter 9, we get a model both of how to come before a merciful God and what it looks like to be a person who needs mercy. Let's pray, or uh, let's read the passage together. Uh, the chapter is lengthy, so we're only going to read a portion of it. Um, but let's read it together, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As, is, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself on this as this day. We have sinned. We have done wickedly, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts. Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of your sins, because, of, uh, because for our sins and for our iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who were around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servants and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eye and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. 
O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Let's pray. Father, clearly this prayer has been included in your word, not just a record of a prayer Daniel played, prayed, but as a pattern, a pattern for us so that we can see ourselves in the light of your truth, see ourselves in the reality of our need, and see ourselves uh, as coming before a merciful God. I pray, Lord, that you would Um, instill in us the heart of Daniel, who by your word and through your truth knows their need and your supply. I pray this in your name. Amen. The first thing we need to notice this morning uh, is the setting, which is in verse 1. It says that this happened in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, who was by by descent a Mede. Okay, and so as we've been moving through the book of Daniel, there's been timestamps. All of them haven't been based on the chronological way that we tell time, you know, this being 2018 AD, um, but based on the rule of particular kings. Now, we know enough history to know how to, co- or, uh, how to connect our way of thinking of time, BC and AD, with this way of thinking of time. So what I'm saying to you is, here in verse one, we know what year this happens in. It's a historical timestamp. The book of Daniel has been full of them. The book of Luke is full of them. The book of Isaiah is full of them, okay? It sets intentionally here the story in history. And what's helpful about the history here is not just a date on a calendar, but realize here that this is the first reign of a new kingdom. Babylon, featured primarily extensively in the book, who Daniel serves for most of the kingdom, or most of his life, uh, has now come to an end. Like we read about back with the writing on the wall chapter, uh, Babylon has been taken over, destroyed, and replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire. And Darius here, a Mede, has been installed over the land of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon, uh, to rule it. And it's in the first year of his reign that we get our story this morning, okay? Now, another thing you need to realize here is Daniel himself now has tasted the reality of God's promises. For one, you may remember that extensively God had communicated to Daniel through the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar the king, through the visions that he gave him, that the Babylon kingdom wasn't going to last that it would be followed first by the Medo-Persians and then even further by the Greeks and then finally by the Romans. He knows these things are coming and he sees the first tick on this prophetic calendar come to pass in his own life as Babylon is replaced. In fact, even, uh, even Jeremiah, which he is reading, makes clear that Babylon's role and reign is only going to be temporary. So do the minor prophets. He sees God faithful to his promises. It's the context The other thing we need to notice this morning is that we discovered Daniel is a uh, a student of the scriptures. Not only do we find that he's prompted in this prayer to his reading, look at verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Not only do we see here that he's been reading Jeremiah, specifically chapter 25 and chapter 29, where it gives a period of time, specifically. Seventy years, Israel, from the destruction of Jerusalem to the overturning of Babylon, to the restoration of the land. Seventy years, Jeremiah says. So he's been reading this, but not only that, if you read the prayer closely, it's full of Scripture. In fact, it's part of what makes this chapter unique of all the chapters in Daniel. The... uh, Jewish name for God, what we sometimes call Yahweh or Jehovah, okay? It occurs eight times in chapter nine and never occurs once in the rest of Daniel, okay? Now, that's not really surprising for the first half of Daniel because that's all in Aramaic and it's a Hebrew word. But in the second half, it only occurs here. And one of the clear reasons is because the language 
that uh, fills this prayer is the language of Scripture. And so you may have noticed, uh, look at verse 13, as is written in the law of Moses. So he, he's been reading Jeremiah, but he's also familiar with the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In fact, in this prayer, he refers to the redemption that happens in Exodus. Uh, he quotes, um, he uses the language of the Aaronic blessing, the blessing given by Aaron the priest, uh, when he says, the Lord caused his face to shine on Israel. That comes from Numbers. He references Deuteronomy and the curses, that's the part where he references in verse 13, the book of Moses, that were promised to come upon them if they were unfaithful. Not only that, but we find in the language of this prayer that he's been reflecting on 1 Kings chapter 8, okay, where Solomon dedicates the temple and predicts that a time will come where because of Israel's unfaithfulness, they will be removed from the land. And so he asks God mercifully that when they pray from their uh, exile, facing the temple, that God would hear their prayers. Daniel is a student of scriptures. It shapes uh, his worldview. It shapes his language in prayer. Through the scriptures, he understands himself, his condition, and who God is. But specifically, what's going on here, like I said, is he realizes that he's 67 years into a 70-year prediction. He realizes the end is coming near. He knows that that end had to require the overturning of Babylon, and that's already happened. And so his prayer ultimately here is that God would finish what he promised to Jeremiah and restore them to the land. And so... Knowing these things, it says that he began to pray in verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Okay, and so we see here, not only does he pray and plead, uh, but he does so with fasting with sackcloth and ashes. When we find those three together, they're all manifestations, outward manifestations of mourning. Sackcloth means that he takes off his normal, usual clothes and puts on rough and drab clothing, okay? Ashes means that he actually takes physically ashes and puts them on his head as a sign of mourning, and then fasting, meaning he stops eating and devotes himself to prayer. Now, we don't have the timestamps on the duration of this prayer. No doubt this chapter operates as a summary of the prayer he prays. By the time he finishes, it's the evening, uh, and so it may be that he's been praying this for a day or for days, but the posture is one of mourning. Uh, now, he says in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Okay, so he's seeking mercy and he makes confession. Now, this is actually really interesting because here he has the promise of Jeremiah that this is going to happen. And he doesn't just pray, God, keep your word, although he clearly prays that. He doesn't just ask God to be faithful in his character, although repeatedly in this prayer he says, not just for us, Lord, but because of your name, because of your reputation, for your own sake. Instead, he approaches this all in confession, as an explanation of sin, an agreeing that they have done wrong, and then a request for mercy. Now, we can read between the lines here and know, since Daniel is acquainted with Exodus, since he's acquainted with 1 Kings, he knows the history of Israel. He's been meditating on how they found themselves in Babylon. And you can understand, okay, if you're a teenage boy and you're taken away and placed in a pagan, king, or a pagan kingdom working for a pagan king, you might ask yourself, how did we get here? What is God doing? And he's had an entire adult life to meditate on this. He's been doing it through the scriptures. And he realizes that basically what has happened is Israel has failed to keep the covenant. Israel has sinned. In fact, notice how he lays out the covenant relationship here in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord God and made my confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant 
and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. Once again, the verbiage there is directly out of Exodus. When God identifies himself to Moses, this is who he identifies himself as, the steadfast loving God who blesses those who keep his word. That verse in Exodus is the most repeated refrain in the entire Old Testament. We find it multiple times in the prophets. We find it in the mouth uh, of Isaiah. We find it in the mouth of Jonah. Remember when Jonah gets mad because God's merciful to Nineveh? And he says, I knew you were this type of God. How does he know? Because of this self-revelation in the book of Exodus. But here he sees and he knows who God is and notice that he's the God who keeps covenant, who keeps his promises, who freely made an agreement with Israel and has held up his end of the bargain. He says, uh, and on top of that, you show steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. But verse five, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. In other words, they're no longer deserving of his steadfast love. They're no longer deserving of God keeping the covenant. Look at how much, uh, how many ways he finds to say that they were wrong. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Every one of these terms could be unpacked at great length. They all bring out a different nuance of the reality, but he basically covers all of his bases. In fact, I think one that's really important there is when it says there that they had done wrong and acted uh, wickedly and then finally rebelled. Okay. He sees this not just as falling short of a standard. He sees this not just as making some mistakes along the way. He sees this as willfully turning against what they know to be right. They rebelled. Here we get a pretty good introduction to what the Bible says about all humanity. You see, the thing is, if we want to discover the merciful king, if we want to know the merciful God, we have to recognize our need for mercy. And I know that the language of sinner is um, terribly unpopular today. But to get the good news that Christianity offers, you have to proclaim the bad news. Jesus himself said, I did not come for the righteous, but to seek sinners and call them to repentance. He compares it to a doctor. He says a doctor doesn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. What the Bible offers in God's plan for us in Jesus Christ is like a medicine. It brings healing, it brings health, it brings life. But to take it, to have it prescribed, you have to accept the diagnosis. And the diagnosis is not pretty. Now before we look more at Daniel's words here, just consider the way Paul puts it in Ephesians. This is in Ephesians chapter 2. Side note, when we talk about the good news that Christianity offers, Ephesians 2 is one of the best explanations of it. But it doesn't begin with good news. It begins this way. Recognize that when Paul speaks here, he's not just speaking of a particular people group, this church in Ephesus, but of humanity. And so here the you, the pronoun here, is referring to yourself this morning. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Now, once again, if we had time, we could walk through and draw out the depths of that imagery. I always think of Ephesians 2, like digging a really big hole. And every single added phrase there is another turn of the spade, making the hole deeper and deeper, the problem deeper and deeper. You see, we cannot receive mercy as long as we think we just need a touch-up. We cannot 
respond truly to what God has done in Jesus Christ as long as we think we just need a little bit of help. What Daniel says here, what Paul says in Ephesians, what Jesus proclaims throughout his ministry is that the problem with humanity goes to the core of who we are, the very heart of our being, our desires, our ability, or our inability. Second thing to notice here is that when Daniel does this, two things. One, he refers to himself as a sinner. Okay, he says we. He doesn't say, God, Israel has done wrong, please help them. He doesn't see mercy as something for someone else. And this is actually really striking if you're familiar with the story of Daniel because he's one of the few totally without any exception good examples in the scripture. Of no place in all of the book of Daniel or anywhere else is there any sin attributed to Daniel. Now there's a lot of great men and women in the Bible who do great things, have great faith. But Abraham, he lies to save his own skin. He says, Sarah, tell him that you're just my sister because if they see how beautiful you are and that we're married, they're just going to kill me. Noah, faithful, one of God's chosen, one, two, righteous, builds an ark, does all these things, gets drunk and passes out in his tent. David, a man after God's own heart, commits adultery and then murder to cover it up. Over and over again, the characters of Scripture are marred by sin. Peter denies Jesus. It runs through every thread. Daniel seems to be an exception. In fact, just consider who Daniel is. We have a tendency to approach wrong and right referentially. What I mean is that we think of ourselves as being bad or good in comparison to something else. Usually, it's in comparison to someone else. Okay? But if we do that with Daniel, we're in trouble. Daniel, who is constantly faithful, who puts his literal flesh and blood life on the line to be faithful to God, who refuses to compromise, who speaks boldly and powerfully and yet compassionately to a pagan king. And yet he can't excuse himself from the need for mercy here. In fact, he makes it very clear that this is not just him praying on behalf of Israel, identifying with Israel, but notice what it says in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. You see, if we're referential with Daniel, we, I think, get familiar with the flaw in the way we generally think about this. When we think I'm good enough and we choose a point of comparison, we always naturally selectively choose those we identify as being worse. Effectively, human righteousness on its own says, well, at least I'm not that guy. None of us goes, well, I know I'm a good person because I'm at least as good as Mother Teresa. That's just not how we think, is it? We always ignore those who we would elevate as being exemplary and we only pay attention to those who we feel that we are better than. You see, the problem with that is, it's a misunderstanding of how sin works. Human life is not a race where as long as we get across the finish line ahead of X amount of people, everything will be okay. He recognizes here that the God he prays to, look again, look again at how he uh, opens it up in verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God. If you have an older uh, translation, that's the great and terrible God. That's the language that uh, Frank L. Baum uses for Oz, the great and terrible. This is where it comes from. He's praying here for mercy, but he has to pray to the God who is, not the God he wishes was. And the God who is, according to the Bible, is perfect and perfectly righteous and just and holy. In fact, we've seen that righteousness play throughout the book, haven't we? We've seen Israel as being those who are being taken advantage of, those who are under the thumb of a wicked power and a wicked king. 
And God has brought justice on those kings, brought judgment on those kings. Think of Nebuchadnezzar being driven mad. Think of Belshazzar in the midst of his party. His kingdom is overthrown. It's easy to read the book of Daniel poorly and think there are good people and bad people, and the bad people oppress the good people, but not for Daniel. He's not just reading the book of Daniel. He's reading the whole history of Israel, and he goes, this is a story about me. Because his reference point is not horizontal, but vertical. His reference point is the God who is perfect and holy. Jesus says that the greatest commandment ever given is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means that sin is rightly identified as any point where God doesn't have our full attention, the expending of our full ability, and our full expression of love. Now you may say that's too much to ask, but you're not starting at the right end. The right end is, what does God deserve? And God as our creator, who is on top of just the fact that he's the one who made us, abundantly perfect in love, in wisdom. You see, God doesn't just deserve our obedience because he is God and we are not. He deserves our obedience because he's right, because he's true, because he's righteous. And so here, Daniel doesn't identify himself uh, as the righteous. He doesn't say, God, come save us from the wickedness of Babylon, although that's a partial truth, one that the prophets bring out. Here he sees the whole picture. Do you remember when Nebuchadnezzar is driven to insanity? And we talked about the fact that actually his posture before he loses his mind, he'd already lost it. Remember, he looks over Babylon, he says, this is the kingdom that I built for my glory. He says, I am the center of the universe. I am the most valuable. I am the most important. He's already lost his mind. Confession just means to agree with God but it also means to embrace reality, to see who you really are. See, another thing that poisons our ability to gauge our own righteousness is insecurity. So much of righteousness is about how we appear to other people. We don't look deep enough in our own hearts. We ignore and we excuse the worst parts of us that we know are true, the thoughts we have that nobody's ever publicized things we keep hidden. But there's another part here that I think is very important to us as moderns. Because even within the church, we too often identify Christianity as being individually oriented. It's about me and my sins and my personal relationship with Jesus, and it has nothing to do with you. You don't know my heart. But here Daniel says, we. We have sinned. And notice that his identification here is not just with Israel present tense, but Israel past. When Daniel uh, was brought into Babylon, when Jerusalem was sacked, when all of this went down, Daniel was just a teenager, maybe as young as 12. And he looks over the whole host of Israel and he says, we collectively have sinned. See, the thing is, Daniel can't distance himself from the sins of the group that he belongs to. Guys, this is like the number one skill we have as modern Americans is distancing ourselves from wickedness. We're so good at identifying evil, but the way we do it is always is over there. And so we draw arbitrary lines and we say, these people did these things, but the people is us. We say, you know, not my president. It doesn't work like that. If America goes to war, we go to war. If America drops a bomb, we drop a bomb. When we look at all of the, the sex trafficking and abuse and injustice, broken and twisted laws, America is the vox populi, vox deus. The voice of the people is the voice of God. This is the structure that we have built. When the black community talks about reparations, they understand this, that we can't say, well, I've never had a slave. It doesn't matter. 
It's our hands that are covered on the bl- with the blood of the innocent. Our inactivity is just as significant as other people's wicked activity. When we don't stand for justice, we are unjust. You see, there are many different ways to try and deal with sin. One is that comparison, another is by distancing. But it doesn't work. It doesn't remove the wickedness. Daniel understands that. He identifies here corporately and he says, we have sinned. For those of you who are Christians, this is so important. If you're looking at the nation we live in or the world we live in or the times we live in or the church we live in and you're going, this is messed up, don't make the mistake of trying to walk away and distance yourself from it and say, get your act together and then I'll participate. Don't make the mistake of saying this is your problem and I'm pure. I'm not a part of this. Augustine wisely said, the church is a whore, but she's also my mother. If there's something wrong with the church, there's something wrong with us. If there's something wrong with our nation, there's something wrong with us. And the place where change is going to begin always is with confession. It has to be with we have sinned, we have transgressed, we have done wrong. And so he lays this all on the table. Then not only that, but notice in verse 6 he says, We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your names to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. What does he say here? We were not ignorant of what was required of us. We were warned of what was coming, and we still didn't listen. Verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away and all the lands to which you've driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. You know the word treachery there is a personal term, right? You don't just commit treason against a rule. You commit treachery against a person, right? You're treacherous against a person. In other words, he's saying here that the way Israel has treated God doesn't align with His character, it doesn't align with how he's treated them. It's an inappropriate and inaccurate and undeserved response against the goodness of God. To us, verse 8, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belongs mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. I love that sentence, to... The Lord, our God, belongs mercy and forgiveness. Okay. By definition, mercy and forgiveness are about the one who grants it, not the one who needs it. Do we understand that this morning? That if you need mercy, you also need someone who is merciful. That if you need forgiveness, you also need somebody who's willing and able to forgive. You see, any design that comes before God like a bargaining table and says, okay, God, I'll do this to pay doesn't understand the nature of the condition. And the glorious truth that that Daniel knows to be the case here, the one that makes this prayer possible, is that God truly is merciful and forgiving. That's the foundation of him coming to confess. That's such good news because one of the things we don't like to do is fess up. And the reason is because oftentimes when we do, life gets a whole lot worse. Right? Because usually when we have to own up to something, we own up to someone who's not necessarily gracious and merciful. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that we should not tell people about our sins because we have to see it in the bigger picture of not just you know, a parent or an employer or a government or these types of things, but the God of the universe. We have to keep things in context here. But my point is this, that when we confess our sins to God, we confess our sins to the one whose character is to show mercy. Alexander Pope said to err is human and to forgive is divine. Now that's a total misunderstanding, but... 
part of God's nature is to forgive. He knows that. It's the foundation of his prayer. But notice here, he says in verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse, the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. Okay. So notice here he says, just what God said would happen, happened. But I want you to notice how he ties this together. Look at verse 14. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us because the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. He sees the calamity that's come upon him as deserved and an aspect or a manifestation of the fact that God is just and righteous. Okay. This is another aspect of mercy. What it means when we confess our sins is not just to agree with the crime, but to agree with the deserved punishment. He says the fact that we're here was not overhanded, heavy-handed, it wasn't harsh. It's exactly what we deserve. Look at verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who brought out your people from the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Why does he evoke the Exodus there? Why does he go so far back in history? He says, now God, you, the one who brought us out of Egypt, why does he bring that in here? Because the thing is that the covenant that God made with Israel didn't begin with Israel's righteousness or goodness. It didn't even begin with their instigation at all. It began with God willingly and freely coming and saying, I am going to make you my people. I am going to give you my promises. What it reminds me of is especially applicable to those who are Christians this morning uh, when we look at the words of Paul speaking to the church of Galatia. And he says, foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? The idea here is, wait a minute, if salvation, like we read in our catechism this morning, is by grace alone, through Christ alone, when you come and confess your sins two years after becoming a Christian, do you now come with a posture that says, you know, God, I, I slipped up here, but I've been doing a really good job? Or do you come before God and say, well, yeah, I slipped up, but I'm going to make it right. I'm going to do this, this, and this. Here's my penance, Lord. Daniel knows that if this is going to be fixed, it's going to be God who fixes it. And so he points back to the Exodus, this time not only of miraculous power and demonstration of, you know, of might, but also grace. Tremendous grace. God draws a distinction between Israel and Egypt in the plagues. The plagues only fall on Egypt and never on Israel, but think of the Passover. The worst plague that God brings is the death of the firstborn sons. Why doesn't it fall on the household of Israel? Because they take a lamb, an innocent animal, they slit its throat, and they put the blood over the doorpost, and he says, then the angel of death will pass over. Are they spared because they deserve it? No, they're spared because of the sacrifice. All of Israel's history is this way. It's full of this. In fact, notice that one of Daniel's greatest concerns here has to do uh, with verse 17. Now therefore, our Lord God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. One of the big concerns Daniel has here is here they are in exile and there's no sacrifices. There's no priesthood. There's no day of atonement. There's no blood which covers a multitude of sins. There's nothing. All of Israel's history has said, kill the slot, or slaughter the lamb and it will make atonement. Bring the blood into the holy place and put it on the ark and it will make atonement. And now for 70 years, the sanctuary has been desolate. They are a people without a covering. And that's problematic because notice what it says in verse 18. 
O oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations, the city that's called by your name, for we do not present our pleas before you because of righteousness, but because of your great mercy. He says here, we haven't been righteous, but he also constantly points to the fact that God has been. And somewhere in here, Somewhere in here, I'm sorry that I can't remember it, you can read it over and find it yourself. He points out that this request he makes, he wants God to perform in his righteousness. The restoration of Israel, he wants it to be a manifestation of God's character, not a denial of it. He wants it to be in resonance with the fact that God is just, pure, holy, righteous. Do you understand the tension there? Let me put it simply. How can a loving God who is also holy and righteous deal rightly with sin and forgive it? How can a holy God who loves us end sin without ending us? These are the bigger tensions in this passage. He knows that God is merciful. He doesn't know how it's going to play out in Israel's history. And there's a bigger problem here. Even if God just wipes away and forgives because the Bible says that he's long-suffering and patient, it's still going to be the same Israel dropped back in Jerusalem. And guess what? That's what history tells us too. In fact, Daniel already knows that because he's looked down the pipeline and he sees uh, a great, you know, this little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes coming in, not just as an evil thing that happens to Israel, but as a judgment on their rebellion. This is only 150 years after the exile. And they haven't learned their lesson. But let me just ask you something. Have you? How many days have you begun with all the positive resolutions that you can? Today, today I'm done. Today I'm a new person. Jay-Z says, you was who you was before you got here. It's always the case. Why is the relationship in your life going south now just like the last one did? Because it's your relationship. Why after every successful revolution in human history that demands human rights do we find tyranny still there because we still have humans in charge? He looks at this and he sees this as a problem, a tension that he needs God to resolve and he doesn't know how it works, but it's gonna work both as an act of mercy and as an act of justice. So this is the prayer he plays, prays, and then I love how he finishes verse 19, O Lord, here. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Then notice what happens, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I'd seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. I can't assume that that detail is unnecessary. There is no evening sacrifice in Daniel's day, but he still marks the time of it. And he marks it for us, pointing to its significance. Here, when the tension of forgiveness and the lack of a sacrifice is so tangible, Gabriel comes to him. Now, what would we expect after a prayer like this? It's clearly an answer to his prayer, right? Immediately, as the words are still leaving my lips, God sends an angel to speak to me. I don't know, a message of comfort? A proclamation of forgiveness? But that's not what we get. Notice what happens, verse 22. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding. Was that what Daniel asked for? No, he asked for forgiveness and for action, for deliverance and mercy. And he says, I've been sent to tell you something, to help you understand to reconcile the tensions that we've been seeing. Verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I've come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. I love that that's given the final place in this chapter. Daniel owns up to everything that he is, fallen short, wicked, rebellious, part of a rebellious people. 
Like Isaiah, he sees truly the holiness of God and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And effectively, Gabriel says here, there's also one other thing. You're tremendously loved. Beloved of God. Don't ever forget that John 3.16, which explains the whole action of God in human history, begins, for God so loved the world. That's you. All these other things are true. A sinner in deserving, deserving of judgment, unrighteous in contrast to God's righteousness, but you're also beloved. And then he says, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, before we read these last few verses, remember what it was that prompted Daniel to pray in the first place. He'd been reading in Jeremiah. Jeremiah had said there will be 70 years. He sees those 70 years are coming to a close, and he says, God, act. Now, notice what Gabriel tells him, verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people. Now, the word there for weeks is like the seven, the word sevens version of dozen, okay? What he says here literally is 77s, okay? There actually is a word that quantifies in Hebrew weeks. This isn't it. This is used of seven days, seven years. It's just like a dozen, 12 eggs, 12 days, 12 years, doesn't matter. 77s. So here he's looking at Jeremiah, and that's 70 years, and Gabriel says, let's talk about 77 years, 70 times 7. Now, it's real easy to go wrong in this passage because it is a little bit cryptic, but we have some pretty good evidence on how to read it just based on the context. Here, Daniel is reading a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah that testifies to 70 literal years, knowing that they're about to be fulfilled, and they will be. Then he's given a new prophecy of not just 70, but 70 times 7, and so it's right and proper to expect that this is also talking about 70 times 7, 490 literal years. Okay. But what does he say here? He says the plan doesn't end with you getting back to Jerusalem. It moves beyond that. But notice what he says. He says 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. These are the things you've been praying about. Let's talk about 490 years to come. And then notice what they're going to accomplish to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a holy place. These are the things that will happen when the 77s are up. Okay, let's go through them again. Look at the first one, to finish transgression. That's literally to end rebellion. Do you see how that's a constant tension in Daniel's prayer? Getting forgiveness today is fine, but what about tomorrow's rebellion? What about the problem that we are still human beings who stand against God? And he says, when this is over, that'll be done. There will be no more rebellion. Secondly, to put an end to sin. Okay. And then finally, and this is the one that starts to make things clear, and to atone for iniquity. This is the same word that's used of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. He says, I'm actually going to pay for sin. I'm going to balance the scales. I'm going to bring about righteousness and justice, simultaneously forgiveness. There will be a sacrifice. And then he says here, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Not only the absence of sin, but the development of righteousness. And it will be everlasting. Not just you will no longer go against God, but you will perfectly and wholly and completely serve him forever. That's what it says here when the 490 are done. And then it adds to seal both vision and profit. In other words, to accomplish everything God has said he's going to say, or said he's going to do. He says here these 490, this is the end game. This is the finish line. This is where everything's been heading and when it's done, it's all done. And then finally, to anoint a most holy place. Remember here, there's no temple in Daniel's day. He'd been praying that God would rebuild the temple, and the, those things are going to be the case. And so here we're given in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. 
Uh, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. Okay, so he breaks it down here and he gives us first 69 weeks in two parts. First, or, uh, first seven weeks, 49 years, and then the total is uh, 483 years. Okay, he, he says there's 70 years, but in three different sections. And the first thing is he says it starts with the going out of the word to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, we also have a date for that. It's recorded for us in the book of Nehemiah, when Artaxerxes gives Nehemiah a proclamation to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem with his authority as king, okay? And so we can put that date on a calendar, and Gabriel says that's when the clock starts. Now, we see two things happen over the course of the next, first, uh, next thing. First is uh, that... Um, it says, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. In other words, Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt in that first 49 years. This is accomplished by Nehemiah and by Ezra coming in and rebuilding. You can read about it in Nehemiah, Ezra, Haggai. Okay, it's, it happens. But then at the end, at the end of the full 483, notice again verse 25, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince. He says that first 483 years brings about an anointed one, brings about a prince. Now there's a lot of princes in the book of Daniel. But here it says that one, the anointed one, a prince is going to come. And here's the thing. Robert Anderson, about 150 years ago, uh, was a detective for Scotland Yard. He was also a Christian, and he made extensive study of prophecy, and he spent a lot of time in this chapter. He wrote a book called The Coming Prince, and it's effectively a giant math equation, okay? What he realized is if we convert the day of that proclamation, which I think is the sixth of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar, uh, in the rule of Artaxerxes, when we know, because the dates are right here for us, and you do the math of 490 years in 360-day calendars, because that's how the ancient world told time, but you adjust for our calendar, a 365-year calendar plus a quarter day that we fulfill in leap years, that we can actually put this date on a calendar. Now, because of what it says in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus' ministry begins during the reign of Tiberius, and we know those dates, and because we know that his ministry went on for three years, and because Passover can be measured consistently because of the moon cycles that we can run backwards, he discovered the exact day when this time would run out, and if Jesus was crucified in 32 AD, which is at least very close, it's hard to nail down because that's one of the things we're not given a timestamp for, but if that's what happened, then this would be to the day, the triumphal entry, to the day when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, according to the prophecy of Zechariah, the only place in his whole ministry where he declares himself to be the promised Messiah. That is the simplest and easiest reading of this text. There are others, but it's the only one that reads Daniel like Daniel read Jeremiah, as being literal and specific and fulfilled. But it says more than that. Notice that after the 69 weeks, Look at what it says there in verse 26. After the 62 weeks, plus the seven makes 69, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So here the anointed one comes and then he's killed and have nothing. And then it says, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now here's another major question we have about this passage, okay? So here we get to the death of Jesus, but what do we have left? We still have seven years, okay? What happens seven years after the year that Jesus died? Nothing significant, nothing that we can put on a calendar. But there is something in the text here that's really interesting. First off, remember that the first 490 years ends with Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And it says after that, he'll be cut off. Doesn't tell us how far after that, just after that's complete. And then notice it also gives us another thing that happens in the interim. It says, uh, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, 
Its end will come with a flood, and in the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. And then notice verse 27. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. There's the missing week, right? Where does that one begin? With this making of a covenant. But before that happens, the anointed one will be cut off. Before that happens, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy Jerusalem. Okay. Listen to the language of that again. I think it's important. Halfway through verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Do you hear how careful that language is? The prince isn't here yet, but the people are. And when you put this together with the rest of what Daniel says, this is Rome. Rome, where the little horn will come out of, according, uh, according to an earlier vision of Daniel. Rome, where, uh, where Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, he puts it forward. But it begins with the rule of Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem, which takes place under General uh, uh, Titus in 70 AD. But then notice this last week, verse 27, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. For half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So he makes a seven-year covenant with the many, literally here, probably with Israel. That's the easiest way to read this. And then halfway through it, he puts their religion to an end. No more sacrifices. In fact, it says, uh, on the wings of an abomination. That word there for wing is a trippy one. It might mean the pinnacle of the temple, the wing. Uh, but either way, this idea of abomination of desolation is something we've already encountered. It's something that the, uh, this one, the one who is to come, the Antichrist, according to the New Testament, will do. Here's how Paul explains it in 2 Thessalonians. He says, he'll walk into the temple and say, actually, I'm your God. Worship me. Then there's three and a half years until the end is poured out on the desolator. Now remember again, what were these 77s to do? To deal with sin, to end rebellion, to finish prophecy. Now we could dig deeply into Thessalonians, into Revelation, into Mark and Matthew when Jesus says these things are still to come. But here's the point. Okay. God's answer to our need is Jesus. He doesn't come up with a new plan. He doesn't lower his standard. He doesn't give us try after try after try, attempt after attempt after attempt. He does something about it. And here's what happens in Jesus Christ and that being cut off, according to Isaiah, who also uses the language of cut off in Isaiah 53. God takes the sins of our life and lays them on his shoulder he takes the punishment that we deserve and freely offers us not just forgiveness, but like we saw in our catechism this morning, God's very nature that will make us righteous. Here's how Paul puts it in the book of Romans. Why does God do it this way? Why does he become a man and die in our place and then offer us forgiveness? He says it's so that God might be both just and the justifier of the ungodly so that God might be totally and completely righteous and yet also make us right before God despite the fact that we are not godly. You see, Daniel here is given the big picture of what God is going to do about human sin. How can God be merciful? Because Jesus. Because Jesus really did come as promised by Daniel on the timeline that was given in Daniel and really did get cut off, not because somebody took his life, but as Jesus says, nobody takes my life, but I lay it down willingly. Like John pointed to Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we see here that Jesus is going to return. Okay. We've, we've seen earlier that this destroying of the desolator is bound up in the receiving of an eternal kingdom as the Son of Man is given the Ancient of Days, as everything is set right. This is the book of Revelation. It tells this whole story in a deeper and fuller way. It uses the same timeline of seven years and three and a half years. It uses the same calendar of 30-day months. It constantly refers to the imagery of Daniel and unpacks it for us. You see, this is really important for us today because the work of Jesus has begun, but it's not yet finished. 
That's true of you as an individual if you're a Christian this morning. God has made you forgiven. He has justified you. He is currently sanctifying you and he will one day glorify you for when you see Jesus, Paul tells us, you will be like him. Perfect, sinless, righteous, whole, new. And so we live in this interim period where Jesus has come and Jesus is coming. Where the Messiah has been cut off and the Antichrist is still to come. Where God has been focusing not on his people Israel, not on a temple, not on the land of Israel, but on carrying this message out to the Gentiles, a proclamation that forgiveness is available for all. It's a very simple equation. We are a people who need mercy. God is a merciful God. Therefore, he sent his son to die for us so that he might justly and righteously forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, everyone in this room is in need of mercy. Whether we've thrown ourselves at the feet of Jesus and asked for forgiveness, not based, like Daniel says, on our righteousness, but on yours, knowing that you lived the perfect life we could not live and died the death that we deserve. Whether we've done that for the first time and now need again to come before you and confess our sins, because John says if anyone says he does not sin, he's a liar. Or if we've never done so, Lord, we're in need of mercy. We thank you, God, that you have provided what we cannot provide. That you have offered what we were not after. That while we were enemies of God, God sent his son to die for us. And thank you, Lord, that you laid these things out to the prophets beforehand, not just so Israel could look forward and wait, but so that we could look back and see, as Daniel did, your word confirmed. And because of that, we can look forward and we say, just as your word said, you sent your son. Just as your word says, he will come back. And when you do, Lord, what you've begun in us will be completed. What is broken in us will be restored. What is hateful and rebellious in us, what we resonate with Paul in saying, I don't want to do the things that I do, and I do the things I don't want to do. Woe is me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will finish the work that you started? And his answer is our answer. We thank God in Christ Jesus. Teach us, Lord, the depth of our sin, not to drive us into the ground, not to lead us to despair, but as a measurement of the love of God that bridged that gap and your grace and your mercy that overflows. We ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name, amen. As we were...